Well, good morning, Church at the Red Door and our uh, online community and even those that are maybe watching from uh, on Channel 11. So we welcome you. Um, I'm excited because I'm always excited because we get in here and right now this is kind of our COVID induced office space that will change. We're getting close to being able to find a place to meet. Uh, in in lieu of where we were and eventually hopefully get back into uh, UCR. But we're in good stead right now and we continue to come to you. And thanks to our AV team, we're able to kind of continue to pull off this amazing thing. And through Zoom and other things, you know, it, it hasn't been meeting in person, that's for sure. But uh, I'm still excited about the word is the word, whether it's uh, over the Internet or, or live stream or whatever it is. Though Jesus' word, God says, my word does not return to me void. It accomplishes the purpose for which I sent it. So I'm just praying that the God would speak to you today through his profound unpacking of reality that he gives us in, in this Bible right here. And some people say, our archaic old book, why would you still read these old books? Living and active is what it says about itself. Paul says, this is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. So, you ready for this? I, there's a couple takeaways. You know, last week we finished the sermon on the plane, and there are a couple of takeaways that I want you uh, to uh, take away. And one of the, a couple of those things, as we looked at that, number one, uh, I want you to have the clear eye perspective on life. Not the plank eye, not the two by four in your eye, as we had seen, as Jesus had alluded to. Take out the plank that's in your own eye to, before you remove the speck that's in your brother's eye. But a, a clear eye and balanced view. Look, you can read the Sermon on the Mount or the Sermon on the Plain or really any of Jesus' teachings and just feel like you're just be, so beaten up. Like I'm a million miles away from being able to accomplish that. And, and you just feel, I mean, even maybe as a follower of Jesus for 20 or 34 years, 40 years, if we're honest, we read this and we just feel a tremendous deficit. At least I do. But a clear-eyed perspective gives us a sense of our own shortcomings, of our own, of our own sinfulness. But it also gives us a clear-eyed perspective on others as well. They're created in God's image. They're, uh, they're valuable. And, and even people that are a, truly a million miles away from the teachings of Jesus... It allows us not to have to be God's eternal hall monitors to feel like anybody who doesn't live up to the standards of the Christian faith should somehow be shunned, as was the case during the time of Jesus. Not at all. A clear-eyed perspective allows us, as John Dixon says, to hold on to very strong convictions, but without a holier-than-thou attitude. We can hold very strong moral convictions based upon the teachings of Jesus while simultaneously not feeling like we're constantly in a place of having to condemn the world or, or be angry or loathe other people that don't hold to Jesus' teachings. In fact, we can have them over for dinner. And so I think, you know, there's two things that can happen. We can read the teachings of Jesus and feel a complete deficit and somehow that we just don't measure up and that we're maybe a, a long way away from God. And then at the same time, it can embolden others to feel a, kind of a loathing for those in our culture who do not yet see the glory of who Jesus was. And a clear-eyed perspective would keep it humbly in balance because we realize our deficit. We realize 
that everyone is created in the image of God and we can gladly engage people in our culture that may hold vastly different views than we hold and in fact come to them and yet at the same time cling to our moral convictions because we believe they are a revelation of the very character of God as Jesus described. So anyway, those are a couple of takeaways. You know, I think about Romans 7. I think Paul struggled with this as well. He, you know, in Romans 7, he, he says, I know nothing, verse 18, Romans 7, 18. I know nothing good dwells in me. That is in my flesh. He sees this ongoing battle. The willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I want, I don't do, but I practice the very evil that I don't want to. But if I'm doing the thing I don't want, I'm no longer the one doing it, but sin dwells in me. And then if you look down at verse 24 in Romans 7, he said, wretched man that I am. He's talking about his flesh. He's not, gonna, he's not talking about the new spirit that's in him. But the battle between this new spirit, this planted seed, this born again portion of him that is now reconciled with God and the ever increasing gravity of, not increasing, but the gravity of the fallen flesh that pulls him away from the very purposes of God. He says, wretched man that I am, who will set me free? And then he calls it this body of death. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So he says, Jesus is going to rescue me. He's going to rescue me from this. So again, I think that's the takeaway I want. I don't want you to feel too condemned by the sermon on the plane. I want you to feel incredibly challenged. I want you to say, I, you know, I want to elevate my game and I, I want increased faith. I, I want to be able to walk more closely with the creator of the universe and in complicity with his plans for my life and not just randomly. Now, as you begin to aspire to do that, I think the next story that we get here in Luke chapter 7 uh, gives us some insight. And I'm calling today the greatest faith in all of Israel. Why? Because Jesus says this. And it is about this Roman centurion that we get uh, in Luke 7. And we're going to read the first 10 verses. And I'm going to show you a quick, Matthew also has an account. Some people think there's some radical inconsistencies. I don't think so. I think it just based upon, well, we'll talk about it in a minute. Okay, so Romans 7, verse 1. Are you ready? Okay. So you want to up your game? Well, you're going to need some more faith. And this guy appears to have some profound, profound sense of faith in the God of the Jews. He's not even a Jewish man. He says, verse one, when he, Jesus, had completed all his discourse in the hearing of the people, he went to Capernaum. And a centurion slave who was highly regarded by him was sick and about to die. Now we don't know, we know in the Matthew account, but we don't know what he's suffering from. I'll, we'll see that in a minute. When he heard about Jesus, he sent some Jewish elders asking him to come and save the life of his slave. So he approached some Jewish elders and asked them to intervene on his behalf. When they came to Jesus, that's the Jewish elders, they earnestly implored him, and this is the reasoning they gave that Jesus should help this guy. He said, look, he's worthy for you to grant this to him, for he loves our nation. Now that's, that's a radical thing. Now we don't know exactly, I've read different accounts, who this Roman centurion was. Was this actually part of the Roman army? Maybe or maybe not. Maybe he was part of uh, the, the, the northern oversight of one of these tetrarchs and uh, he'd just been enlisted to kind of keep the peace. Uh, I've read some accounts that much of the Roman army wasn't necessarily in the northern part of Israel. I can't really speak to that authoritatively. Read different accounts, but anyway, we know 
know he's a Roman. We know he's a centurion enlisted to keep order in the northern part of Israel. That's essentially what we know. And he says, he loves our nation and it was he who built us our synagogue. So somehow this guy had some authority. A centurion is a centurion just where we get century, a hundred, some say between 80 and a hundred people he had oversight of or other soldiers he had oversight over. So he had, you know, significant amount of authority. And in his area, he helped the Jews build a synagogue. That's interesting to me. He says, now Jesus started on his way with them. And when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself further for I'm not worthy for you to come under my roof. So first thing we know is he has a strong sense of his own deficit. Now that's unusual. Most of the Romans would say, well, who's this Jewish God, this deity? We have the, we have the powerful pantheon of gods. Who is this Jewish God? And they would minimize it, marginalize it, maybe completely exclude it from their thinking. And yet now he says, I'm not even worthy. So he has a strong sense of his own sinfulness. That's key number one to any step in the right direction of actually having faith. There are a lot of people that have faith in all kinds of things, but they don't start from the groundwork that they are unworthy. That's how we approach God, in our unworthiness, not in our worthiness. We don't come because, well, we've got everything figured out and now we can approach the God of the universe. He said, for this reason, I did not bother. I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. Now, this is fascinating to me on so many different levels that we're going to look at this morning. I'm fascinated by this. How does he know this? How does he, all you've got to do is say the word. And it's just an amazing story to me for a Gentile at this stage of the developmental redemptive process of God. It's just fascinating to me. He says, for I also am a man placed under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to this one, go, and he goes and to another, come, and he comes into my slave, do this, and he does it. Now, when Jesus heard this, he marveled at him. We're going to talk a little bit about this. I think Jesus was radically pleased, and he was marveling at this centurion. Have you ever thought, I wonder if God marvels at me? Some of you may be, I, you, you, just, I don't, you may be going to church for 30 years, and you're just like, I still think God's ticked off at me all the time. Do you desire for God to marvel at you and your life, to be pleased with you? Well, Jesus marveled at this man. And I saw so I want to get, I want to go deep this morning and figure out or try to maybe get to get some facets of this man's life that might give us some clue as to why Jesus would marvel at him so significantly. And he turned and said to the crowd that was following him, I say to you, not even in Israel have I found such great faith. Now, this, this, you, gotta, you have to understand the setting and the context, how offended the Jewish leaders would have been. This is a Gentile, number one, a dirty dog Gentile. Uh, don't even touch them. I mean, don't have anything to do. And an occupying force that they didn't want within the borders of their nation. Uh, part of the man and oversight and everything else. And they, and now just the fact that Jesus is talking to him must have been somewhat unusual. Although we know that they liked him because he had given some, you know, help with their synagogue and what would have been going through their minds? 
well, I'm sure they were mad. They were angry. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the slave in good health. It, was just, it just happened like that. Jesus spoke the word. And somehow this centurion knew that just at the speaking of the word, he, he, he saw his own deficit. He believed in an unseen realm. And he believed, obviously, in some kind of chain of command in this unseen realm. And then he saw the authority that was vested in Jesus. Now, how much the fullness of his theological understanding? I mean, what did he really understand? I think about all the time as I engage people in a culture that may not in, in any remote way identify as Christians. How much do they understand and how much do they absolutely walk in darkness? And there's always a developmental path. Some people can be very near the kingdom and yet not want to go anywhere near a church yet. And other people may be nice, genteel, wonderful people, and they may be a million miles away. This guy was very near, very close. In fact, Jesus makes the comment, now this is faith, and he marveled at it. And I marvel that Jesus is marveling at a Roman centurion. I marvel at that. Now I want to take you quickly to Matthew's account. We're going to try to maybe settle just a little bit of an inconsistency here. Uh, Matthew 8, verse 5, it says, And when Jesus entered Capernaum, same story. I believe it could have been two different stories. I think it's pretty clear that it was the same story. Some speculate it might have been two different stories that were very similar. I still think it's the same story, uh, unless there were two Roman centurions. A centurion came to him imploring him, saying, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, fearfully tormented. Now, we didn't get that in the Lukean account. He, he was fearfully tormented. Now, that could have been just a disease or it could have been possession in some way, demonic possession. It could have just been a, a mental, radical mental disorder that was plaguing him. Whatever it is, well, he was lying tormented and this guy was really concerned. Another facet of this Roman centurion is that he was really caring about those that were under his command. He said, Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. He said, wait a minute. Luke's account said that he sent some guys and they came in and talked to Jesus. And now it's saying the centurion's actually talking to him. He says, and the centurion said, well, obviously the Bible is inconsistent. We can throw it out the window because it's not consistent. And if it's not every word is the unadulterated word of God, then we throw the Bible out. Well, wait a minute. Let's just talk about this for a minute. The centurion said, Lord, I'm not worthy for you to come under my roof, but just say the word. My servant will be healed. For I also am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to this one, go, and he goes, and another come, and he comes, and my slave do this, and he does it. It's the same account. I'm convinced this is absolutely the same account. And when Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who were following, truly, I say to you, I have not found such great faith with anyone in Israel. I say to you that many will come from... Now, Jesus, and this adds a little bit more dimension to what Jesus was saying. Many are going to come from the east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. He's saying this because some of the prophets had seen this coming. But the east and the west is now talking about Gentiles are going to be included in God's redemptive plans for earth. Now, that too was astonishing for many of them. They thought this is our God, this is the God of our forefathers. God hates the Gentiles. Someday he's going to eradicate all of them. And, you know, but that was never God's plan. And that was over and over. We see that all the way back to Genesis 12, where he says, I'm going to bless those who bless you. And through your seed, Abraham, all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. Jesus was that seed. And now Jesus is saying, of course, I'm going to bless those they come from the east and the west, and they're all going to recline at the table, including 
including the centurion. But the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And Jesus said to the centurion, go and it will be done as you ever believed. The servant was healed at that very moment. So a couple of things here. Uh, obviously inconsistencies. You can't believe the Bible because it's, you know, well, first of all, you need to understand if there were inconsistencies, you can't both, both argue inconsistencies and that people did all these redactions later, hundreds of years later. Uh, it's one or the other. This would have been a clear inconsistency. Anybody could have seen. So if there were a bunch of later redactions, then we can see clearly that they would have changed this up and made these consistent. I think this gives insight into the personal nature and the, 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 the authorship of the Bible itself. Now, there's a guy named Jim, Jim Estabrook, and listen to what Jim says. He said, the Bible often gives credit to one in authority, even when others do the work. As an example, John, the Gospel of John, <coughs> excuse me, John wrote, Pilate took Jesus and scourged him. Well, did really Pilate take Jesus and scourge him? No, he had him scourged, but the Bible says Pilate scourged him. Does that mean Pilate literally was scourging him? No, he was doing it on his authority. He simply meant that Pilate ordered it to be done. Likewise, when the text says that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, it means that his disciples baptized more than John. In fact, John 4, 1 and 2, the apostle John clarified this when he wrote, though Jesus himself did not baptize, but his disciples. This is consistent in the language and, and that kind of uh, language that was used during this time. You could just say, well, he did it, even though he personally didn't do it. We say it all the time. President Biden did this. A governor did this. Now, did he physically go down to and drive down to La Jolla and no, he commanded an order. He said something. People may have gone on his behalf and then he did it. And that's exactly what I think is happening here. And it may sound like he said it and then servant said it. And, but you can use that kind of language even if you have somebody speaking on your behalf. Sometimes the text indicates that the person in position of authority actually spoke for himself when in fact that person wasn't even present. I think this is the case. The liaison that spoke was doing so with his authority. Today, as in times past, courts of law hold that what a man does through a duly constituted agency, he himself actually legally does that. When the president sends staff members, etc., and they speak on his behalf, uh, we get this. Matthew simply used a common form of speech where one attributes a certain act to a person, an act that is performed not by him, but by his authority. That's all that's happening here. Don't, don't, we don't have to get so crazy about these inconsistencies, therefore we throw the Bible out. Again, the fact that it has the appearance of inconsistency is proof to me that there weren't hundreds of years later all these redactions, other ways they would have tried to, you know, garner this consistency. So anyway, hopefully that will help you understand if you come across that and say, well, look, I, you know, there's always an answer to this. Uh, look, this Bible has stood the test of time for 2,000 years. And I promise it'll stand the test of time for the next 20 or 30 years as well. So again, who was the centurion? Uh, fascinating. Uh, it was a Gentile, obviously, was in control. How would he have had access to these Jewish leaders? He was probably a proselyte, meaning he was already believing into, you know, even through the Roman occupation. God was accomplishing his purposes. They were coming in to dominate and, and, and the Jewish people. But what was happening is people in the diaspora, etc., people from around the, 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 the Mediterranean were coming in and finding out about God 
in very unique ways and already beginning to bow before his authority. God had granted them in some way some level of faith, and that was clear here. And somehow, someway, I, I, I can't fully understand, he already had more insight into the unseen realm, the chain of command, etc., of the unseen realm than even Jesus' disciples. Now, granted, this is early on in their followership, but how would this Gentile have it? I, do you get this? This is a mind-boggling story. It's infuriating to the Jewish leaders. It's confounding to Jesus' disciples. It even makes Jesus marvel. Don't be so surprised if people you think might be the last people on the earth that would ever have faith into Jesus show up on your radar screen and you too marvel at the faith that they are possessing even apart from you. You know, I, I've written about this at various points, but I think there's also one element I want to just briefly touch on. He was sympathetic to the God of the Jews, the God of Israel, this Roman centurion. I think through history, some of the most demonic activity has occurred. In other words, he was the opposite of being an anti-Semitic person. In fact, he was embracing their God and building their synagogues and now going to this Jewish teacher, this rabbi, with faith that was demonstrably much greater than anything Jesus had seen in Israel. It's an amazing story. You know, why? I believe because he was sympathetic to the Jewish people. I think it goes all the way back to Genesis 12. Those who bless you, I will bless. He was blessing the Jewish people, and now Jesus was the blessing in his life. And the residual effect of that was that his servant was now healed from his being tormented and paralyzed. I mean, this is a fulfillment of epic proportion that had been promised 2,000 years prior to Jesus. We're 4,000 years removed from this, but even in our last century, we can see some of the most demonic activity was inspired and it was also accompanied by anti-Semitism. Look at Hitler. Look at Stalin and the pogroms and all the Lenin, everything that went on in Russia, I mean, over these last over this last century. Antichrist behavior, antichrist is almost always anti-Semitic as well. It's amazing. It's just true. And so I don't want to go too much in that. But it does, you know, the first Gentile to receive the Holy Spirit that we know after, after Jesus was ascended to the right hand of the Father was Cornelius. And Cornelius, it just includes, gave alms to the Jewish people. I, I just find, again, the sympathy towards the Jewish people as something that's very indicative of not only the fulfillment of the Abrahamic promise in Genesis 12, but also just a picture of the heart of someone that is already bowing before the God of the Jews. Whether or not they understand in full or not, it's just almost a prerequisite. It's fascinating. The Syrophoenician woman, she admitted to being a dog. You know, Jesus said it's not good to throw the bread of the children to the dogs. She was a Gentile. She wasn't offended by it. Yes, but even the dogs feed from the master's table. She was identifying Jesus as a master, even as a Gentile woman. I've referred to this in the past as the Gentile test. 
So anyway, that's just a sidebar note, but I do think it's, it's very significant in the life of this Roman centurion. He bows before the God of the Jews. He, he recognizes Jesus' authority. He understands the chain of command, how he got all this information. I don't really know. I'll speculate on that in a minute, but this is fascinating stuff. Are you sympathetic to the Jewish people? You have anti-Semitism that rises in your heart? Be careful. I'll just be cautious. I will caution you on that. Be cautious. Okay, so as we go on, how, again, how is this even possible? I, it's, just, it's just faith. It's just faith. Well, what is faith? I mean, Hebrews 11, verse 1, we know. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things we cannot see. It's unseen. I very often refer to faith as the currency in the unseen realm. The, the dollar bill is the currency, or at least here in America, the dollar bill is the currency in the seen realm. But what gets you around and, and, and gets you access and entree to different things in the world is if you have money, you can go anywhere to do anything. You can fly to space. You can get on Elon Musk's uh, spaceship and you can fly off. I mean, who knows what? I mean, you can pretty much buy your way in anything with money. It's the same way in the unseen realm. The currency, though, is faith. It's the assurance of things hoped for. But it's a strong, powerful conviction of things that we simply cannot see. Now, scientists would say, ah, I don't believe it if I can't see it. Trust me, science believes all kinds of things that they can in no way prove or see. Many, many things. They said, no, science is just our, our ability to put something in the lab. There are a lot of things that they can't put in the lab. And they speculate about and they base an entire belief systems around things that, that, that aren't even subject to the scientific method. So everyone has to have an element of faith. Even our ability to comprehend the universe, uh, our belief in our ability, the, the laws of the universe, that there should be order in the universe and then it should reveal itself in some way and that we have minds that can then extract that information. Now, a lot of that is faith-based, and but people say it's not. So this is not unusual. Science says we just look for patterns and we like, and when things emerge over and over and over, we hypothesize and maybe eventually a law emerges over time. You can't see gravity, you just see its effects. It's the same way in the spiritual realm. So don't be distracted by the scientific drumbeat of our day that says, well, we only you know, we only gonna believe in things that we can prove in the, in the, in the lab. Most things are not even subject to those kinds of constraints in the scientific method. Just understand that. You believe, people believe all kinds of things that they have no ability to prove, again, through the scientific method. But the next big question is, again, how did this Gentile, this enemy, this, uh, you know, potentially they would be construed as an enemy of God's people, as a centurion? Obviously he wasn't, he was building a synagogue, etc. How did he get this kind of faith? And of course, that begs the question, How, by extension, how do we get this increased amount of faith? How do we get this? That's our point this morning. I want that kind of faith. I want Jesus to marvel at my life. Do you? Do you want Jesus to marvel at your faith? I know I do. Well, first of all, we've got to recognize it's a gift, folks. Faith is a gift. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, even the gift of salvation is a function of what? For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the what? Gift of God. So the gift is salvation, yes, but how does it come? By faith. So by extension, faith is the gift. That then leads to the salvation. It's not a result of works so that nobody's going to brag about it. 
So Paul was clear to the church at Ephesus that faith is the, the access to salvation, and faith is a gift. Salvation itself is a gift. Romans 12, verse 3. For through the grace given to me, Paul says to the Romans, I say to everyone among you not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. Faith, again, is a what? It's a gift. Faith is a gift. 1 Corinthians 4, 7. So speaking about the Corinthian spiritual lives. Who regards you as superior? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you, if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? He says, everything you have in the spiritual dimension, you've been given. Faith has been given to you. Now, we're going to talk a little bit more about, well, then if it's just a gift, I don't have any control over it. That's not true. There's a balanced perspective here that we're going to look at. And then lastly, Paul tells this young Timothy in 1 Timothy 1, 13 and 14, he says, even though I was formerly Paul, Saul, become Paul, I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor, yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and the love which are in Jesus. So faith and love are in Jesus, and then they're somehow we receive this faith that leads to salvation and the transformation of our lives. They're in Christ and he's giving it as a gift. So God, remember, faith is a gift. It's allotted to us. And we'll see that in a minute. And there's even the spirit, I believe there's a spiritual gift of faith, which is like this extraordinary superpower kind of faith that some have exhibited. Some of that is just a spiritual gift. God just gives some people levels of faith that are mind boggling. You know, I mean, people, I think people who just take off and go into the deep Middle East and, and Islamic countries or as missionaries, knowing that they're at risk of their lives, those are unbelievable demonstrations of faith that I, I, I have no doubt that Jesus to this day is marveling. He's marveling at the amount of faith, no different than the Roman centurion, who I'm sure was risking reputation and other things by kind of submitting and believing into the God of the Jews. So how does God, here's my question this morning. How does God give the gift of faith? How does this work? Well, it comes by hearing and seeing Jesus activity, if you will, which of course includes, uh, includes the gospel. So when you begin to see Jesus activity, now it can include the preaching of the gospel right now, you know, it, it can include good works, let your works shine before men that might see your father in heaven and glorify him. There's all kinds of things they need to see so that it's by hearing and seeing these things that faith emerges. It's exactly what Paul tells the, uh, the Romans in Romans chapter 10, verse 14. He says, how will they call on him? How, how's the Coachella Valley here going to call upon the creator of the universe? How are they going to call on him who, whom they've not believed? How will they believe in them who they've not heard anything about? How will they hear without a preacher, someone to just have this conversation winsomely, humbly, contritely, clear-eyed, without any kind of hall monitor, holier-than-thou, loathing of others. There's no place for that in the kingdom. 
How will they preach unless they're sent? So we see preachers and senders of preachers and supporters of preachers and all kinds of things. Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. However, they did not all heed the good news. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? So, and this is the operative verse, verse 17 of Romans 10, faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. How does faith grow? Well, you got to hear something. So what happened with this Roman centurion? Where did he get this information? Well, he knew the elders. Now, were they talking about Jesus? Uh, maybe, maybe not. I would doubt that many of them were giving them his, you know, Jesus, their wholehearted support as they were engaging the centurion in some way. How did he make this leap into the greatest faith that Jesus had seen in Israel enough to make Jesus marvel? Because it's instructive for us. I want to know, how did that happen? Well, he saw something happen. Maybe. Maybe, maybe he had heard about the, the, the officials, the royal official's son in John 4, starting in 46. Therefore, Jesus came to Cain of Galilee where he'd made the water wine and there was a royal official whose son was sick at Capernaum. Now, this was all in the same area that, that we, we find this Roman centurion. When he heard the news that Jesus had come out of Judea into Galilee, he went to him and was imploring him to come down and heal his son for he was, his son was at the point of death. And so Jesus said to him, unless you people see signs and wonders, you simply will not believe. The royal official said, sir, come down before my child dies. He said, go, your son lives. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke and started off and he was going down. His slaves met him and said, your son was living. And he inquired of them the hour and they said yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him and the father knew it was at that very hour when Jesus said, your son lives. And he believed in his whole household. And this is, again, a second sign that Jesus performed when he'd come out of Judea into Galilee. So I think most theologians would believe that this occurred prior to the Roman centurion, although we don't have a perfect chronological, chronological account. I have to believe that the centurion had heard this, had heard some through the rumor mill. I mean, Jesus, the news was spreading about Jesus all over the Galilean region. Hadn't really spent much time down in Jerusalem yet, but news was spreading. He had already had a sympathetic heart towards the God of the Jews. And somehow within the gift of faith, he was putting somehow, some way, putting this together. I'm going to ask you, who told you about Jesus? Or maybe this is your first time to hear about Jesus. Really, the, 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 the biblical Jesus, not Jesus icon, Jesus cultural, interesting character of the past history. Who, who first started talking to you about Jesus? What have you seen in your life that might give rise to faith? Maybe you've seen a miracle in your own life. Maybe you, maybe you don't even know who to apply it to. Maybe you should have died in a car accident. Every, everyone else died, but somehow you were preserved. So you say, well, that's just how chance works. But no, somewhere deep down in your soul, you know that God has invaded your life in different places or that there's a voice in your head drawing you towards towards the good and towards towards light. And, and maybe you haven't made the connection between the biblical Jesus and his father and this, but somehow even hearing this this morning, your faith is rising. Well, maybe it was Jesus there. Maybe Jesus has been near me, drawing me toward him 
for years. I, I don't know. Maybe that's what was occurring here. But do you realize that it was God that was orchestrating this gift of faith through a bunch of different things? Things you've experienced, things you've heard, things you've seen maybe in a faith community. Maybe you have a friend who's a Jesus person. And though they're clearly not perfect by any means, you've seen something in them that's desirable and that desirable facet in their life. Now you're making the connection for the maybe the first time. Maybe it's Jesus. What about your life now? What if you've displayed the gift of faith and you've gotten baptized and you maybe become part of a community of faith, but you just want more faith? How, is that even possible? If it's a gift, can you go back and say, hey, I know you gave me that tie last uh, for my birthday you know, last year. Can you give me three or four more ties? I mean, that's usually not how gifts work, but that's how this gift works. It can grow. Do you think I wouldn't even be here today had I not acted on that little faith that I had years ago to first time I was terrified to get up in front of anybody and talk coming out of college? That first time I'd been asked to speak and I said, okay, I'll do it. Or the first time that somebody said something and I kind of believed it or the first, I mean, there have been, you know, faith builds over time. Laura and I are at a radically different place that we can believe for bigger things than we've ever believed because we've seen God come through so many times. But can it grow? Luke 11, listen, I say to you, we'll get here in weeks to come. I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. Everyone who asks receives and he who seeks finds. To him who knocks, it will be open. Now suppose one of you fathers is asked by a son for a fish. Will he not give him a, will he give him a snake instead of a fish? Will he? Or if he's asked for an egg, will he give him a scorpion? By the way, we found a scorpion in Tessa's room last night, just a little one. We have Welcome to the desert, right? For those of you who don't know about the desert, I'm looking out right here out of my office uh, my house, in, my, in my home, and I'm looking at the mountains. There's scorpions all over there. So if she asks me for an egg, I'm not going to give her a scorpion, although she might think that now based on the scorpion in her room last night. If you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him. Not only the Holy Spirit, clearly faith can be asked for. How do we know that? Well, the apostles asked. Luke 17, verse 5, the apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. How does that work? The son of a demon-possessed child did the same thing in Mark 9. Verse 23, Jesus said to him, if you can, he's asking rhetorically, he says, if you can heal my son, he says, if you can, he says, all things are possible to him who believes. Immediately, the boy, boy's father cried out and said, I do believe. Help my unbelief. In other words, there's room for more. I have some faith here is what he's saying. But help, help me have more. I, I, help my unbelief. Unbelief is the opposite of faith. So can you ask a little bit? Yes. People are asking all the time. Jesus says, ask and you'll receive. You want more faith? Ask for it. Ask for it. Of course, then there's the spiritual gift of faith that I alluded to. I just want to just quickly touch on this. 1 Corinthians 12 is the list of the gifts along with Romans 12. It says there are a variety of gifts, the same spirit. There are varieties of ministries in the same Lord. There are a variety of effects, but the same God who works all things in all persons. To each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. We each get different giftings, 
so that as a community, common good is common unity, community where we get our word. For to one is given the word of wisdom through the spirit, to another word of knowledge according to the spirit, to another faith by the same spirit. In other words, different parts of the body as we come together, some will just have this superpower of faith. I believe that that's what this is speaking of. Everyone has an allotment of a measure of faith that God's given. And we can ask and increase our faith. Some have the supernatural, spiritual gift of faith. And they can just believe, man, they just, I've, you know, I, I would like to think of myself as that person, but I've met people that have faith that just makes me marvel. You know, I, I don't know that I, I certainly maybe have some increased faith, it has increased for me over the years, but then there's a supernatural spiritual gift. Can I just tell you, I want to be around those people. And so do you. Why? Because when you're around them and you see their application of faith and you see God through, your faith will grow too. That's why community is so important. So how does God give the gift of faith? He also gives us a community. We have to get, folks, we have to get past this thing, of uh, this mentality of I need to go to church. Otherwise, God may be angry and I may get a demerit or something. You don't go to church to make God happy. You go to church so that you can experience for the common good in the community all the gifts. And as you see other people's profound gift of faith, your faith will grow. We don't just go to church because we're obligated to go to church. That's not why you go to church. You go because you're like, I want Jesus to marvel at my life. He marvels at faith. If I want my faith to go, I need to see and hear constantly. That's why community is so important. I think Jesus was just so pleased, as I said earlier. You know, I just think he was so pleased with his Roman centurion. He loves to see faith. He loves to see, he tells somebody to give and they just give without even thinking about it. He loves seeing that. He loves people who he tells to, you know, go down and do something and they just do it and they don't ask. They just believe they're worshipers. And that's what the, Jesus said. The father seeks those who will worship him in spirit and in truth. It takes faith to do that. It takes faith for me to get down in my office alone with nobody around here and raise my hands and worship and worship. Why would I do that if I don't really believe? Are you consumed with pleasing the Lord? Are you consumed with, you know, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul says, we make it our ambition to be pleasing to the Lord. We see clearly that Jesus is pleased with his Roman centurion's faith. So do you want to be pleasing to the Lord? Do things, engage in things, open your ears, open your eyes, be in community with those who have great faith. You're swept up into faith sometimes of a community. Faith you would never have had if you're just out there isolated, alone, trying to live your Christian life in isolation. It just doesn't work that way. It's for the common good is what we saw in 1 Corinthians 12. I'm swept up into vision and the use of my gifts and, and sometimes when I'm down, a community and faith and others can lift me back up and continue, allow me to continue in my road of faith. Why? Because I want to be pleasing to him. You know, the Bible says, Hebrews eleven six. it's impossible. It's without faith, it's impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who, what? who diligently seek him. 
Was the Roman centurion rewarded for seeking, for having this great faith? Was that plea? Yes, he was rewarded. He had great faith. So in closing, how do we please him? I'm just gonna make this very simple. Write these things down. I'll make these things very simple. To please him, what have we learned? We need faith. You wanna be pleasing to God? Grow your faith. How do you grow to your faith? Listen to the word. Hopefully this morning, I've given you a lot of scripture here. That's welcome to church to the red door. I mean, we just go through this Bible. This Bible is beaten up and torn. I got another Bible starting, you know, I just, it, we are in the word. We're word people. Why? Because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. That's what we're doing in Luke's account here of the gospel of Jesus. To get more faith, we need to be a witness to his works. We need to be part of a community so we can see other people's great faith and we can be, again, swept up into vision, swept up into using our gifting, swept up into the whole thing that begins to elevate us. The whole group and community can elevate all of us. When my faith increases, somehow it has fallout effect. It has a residual effect on you. And when you do extraordinary things, I think about the late Gary Ames. I still weep over the loss of my friend. And Barb, we continue to pray for you. Here's a man, I think about his exploits down into Cuba and different places and, and, and the money they invested in the kingdom and in Seattle and different places around the world. And I just... My faith grew knowing Gary Ames. It's amazing. A legacy of faith. I hope it's a legacy for his children and his children's children. Powerful. He and Barb's lives. I'm swept up into that. I grow because of that. To get more faith, we need to act on what God tells us. Because when we do, we see him show up and we go, wow, I, I can't believe I pulled that off. Oh, by the way, I didn't pull it off at all. He pulled it off through me and your faith grows. If you're, if you're not on this journey and you don't find anything and you, you don't see any of the breadcrumbs that God's leaving and you just sit and say, well, I'm saved. Your faith isn't going to grow. God, I want Jesus to marvel. Look, if you don't care about deeply having Jesus marvel to be pleased with you. If it's not your overwhelming daily striving to be pleasing to him like it was the Apostle Paul, then some of this just isn't going to make sense to you. But some of you, I know, some of you even this morning are saying, you know what? I want to be pleasing. I want Jesus to marvel at my life. Grow in faith. Do these things. And lastly, to get more faith, you simply have to ask. And then how does he answer your request? He probably will put you in places. He might even bring persecution or struggle or difficulty into your life. It's not just that he, you know, think it, think it, think with his nose and, you know, you have more faith in your head. He probably is going to give you opportunity to look at the scene realm and go, oh my gosh, that'll never work. Oh, but I have faith. I have a conviction of things I can't see, an assurance of things I cannot see. And you act on it. And that's how he answers your prayer to ask. So be careful when you ask for more faith because he's probably going to give you the opportunity to grow in faith. And that's how he gives it to you. So we hear it, we see it in others, and we act on it. Okay, are you with me? 
I marvel at this. I think it's extraordinary. I, I, I love the Roman centurion. I can't wait till I leave this earth. And one of the, one of the guys, I'm going to say, hey, can we have a little coffee together? You know, I want to meet this Roman centurion. How did you get to this place of faith? And maybe he can give me a little bit more insight than I was able to glean from the word this morning. But anyway, hope that's helpful. Again, all this is the word. Let me just pray in closing. Lord Jesus, would you grow our faith? We want you to marvel at our lives as you marveled at the Roman centurion. And just lift up your hands wherever you are right now. You want more faith? Lord Jesus, ask him. Lord Jesus, give me more faith. And then expect that he's going to give you situations to engage your faith. Lord Jesus, I want more faith. Lord, I I am committed to community so that I can be, you know, lifted. A rising tide lifts all boats. And I want to be in the boat that's rising and in some kind of community. I want to see great faith in others and be moved by it. I want to continue to hear the word, whatever channel it comes from or comes through. I'm going to read the Bible myself. I don't need someone to always parse it for me. It helps, and I love the community, but I also want to read the Bible for myself. Lord, grow my faith. And then, my friends, I'm telling you, that is a prayer he will answer. All right, we love you. Hey, have a glorious week. Can't wait uh, to be with you next. And uh, anyway, we love you. We love you. We love you. Go out and make Jesus famous.